to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. City Church Philadelphia were feeling pretty beat up. They, they, they knew they were small. They had done all they could to keep going, but it, it was hard going. The town was about 38 miles southeast of Sardis. Do you remember we've, we've gone up to the north and we're going back down again to the south? The town is a fertile town full of vineyards, full of crops, abundance. It was a town full of temple, temples. All kinds of things that you could put your hope in. All kinds of different things to offer you security. And yet it was a town of, I'm told, almost constant uncertainty and fear. For many who lived there would be familiar with a huge earthquake that had hit the area decades before. And as earthquake tremors were commonplace, the uncertainty of not knowing whether this was going to be the next big one would have been tiring, crippling, made you fearful. History tells us, though, that they had done very well from it because the city was free of taxation off the back of this earthquake. The authorities had waived their taxation to help things recover. And look around the town and you could see all kinds of things, all kinds of pressures that the church in Philadelphia were dealing with on a daily basis. There was a culture that sought to quietly assimilate and absorb them, all these other religions, these temples. Old friends, old family who had rejected them, disowned them. Maybe pressure came from the pagan temples that were there as well. It certainly came from the local synagogue. We'll see that in a bit. So maybe this church had become a little inward-looking. Could you blame it? They had worked hard, they had resolutely stood their ground. Perhaps they weren't looking for new opportunities and mission at this point. They were simply holding fast, and for them that was enough, wasn't it? If you were here before Christmas, you might remember Sardis, and we said it was the harshest letter, the start of chapter 3. I think this week in Philadelphia is the most positive letter, the most encouraging, the warmest. I think there are some hints of stuff they're not doing so well at, but basically, it's pretty positive. Have a look at some of the phrases he uses. Have a look down at verse 8. 
He says, I know your deeds, I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Or verse 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently. They kept going. They persevered. They stuck at it. It's a letter of encouragement because they've held fast. They may be clinging on by their fingertips, but they're still clinging on. They're still there. And they have been active in their faith. They have been getting on with stuff. Do you notice that? Their service, their bravery has not gone unnoticed because, verse 8, I know your deeds. It's not just been a private behind closed doors faith. It's been faithful outworking of their relationship with Christ. He knows them. And we've said week on week that that intimacy, that knowledge that Jesus has of his churches at times, at, at times is a real challenge. Because he knows them, because he is with them, because Jesus is among the lampstands, because he's not far from the reality of life for them, then they're challenged because he sees what they're up to. And he sees, he sees them, they're backsliding and it's bad news. He sees they've been doing things their way rather than his way. And the fact that he, he knows them is a challenge for them. Nothing is hidden from him. But I think this week it's an encouragement. Actually, the fact that he knows them is, a, is a, an encouragement for them. Maybe, maybe if you're pressing on, if you're just keeping going, if you're just clinging on by your fingertips, the fact that Jesus knows you is something that you can rejoice in because he's not forgotten you. Maybe you're thinking, well, has God got more important things on his plate? Maybe he's not listening to my prayers for deliverance. Maybe he can't hear me. Maybe my, my prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling, but Jesus knows them. He sees their deeds. He encourages this weak and frail church. And so if it is an encouraging letter, I think there are a number of things that he points at, and they would be the things that we focus in on. I mean, we'll think about what they mean for us. Um, happily, they could begin with P, which is extraordinary. So um, we're not going to look at all of them. Um, so he, he encourages them, he looks at their deeds and he highlights their strength in this face of weakness. So if you like, the first encouragement, the first P, which we're not going to look at, is a P for performance. He says, I know your deeds and I'm pleased with you. We're not going to go there though tonight. Um, the next encouragement, and we'll put them both up on the screen. Things working. There we go. Exciting. There we go. I'm just going to put them both up. Um, so the first one he notes is, uh, is their protection, but we're going to do power first. So I'm doing it backwards. You'll see why in a second. It makes sense. Um, so there's a protection for them. You see that especially um, later, on in, later on in the letter where you've got the synagogue of Satan. Um, you've got Jews who are persecuting them. Jesus says, I will deal with them. I will shield my people. This is not out of my control. I have not forgotten you. We'll come on to that in a bit. Um, but as a way in there, the first one is power that we're going to look at this evening. And that, I think, comes out by um, describing in verse 7 and verse 8 his description of himself and this talk of an open door in verse 8. So let's have a look at verse 7 and 8 together. And you'll see something, firstly, of his power. 
Verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, remember we said angel is a, either a messenger or a church leader, probably the church leader. Write this, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And we've said each time that the way Jesus describes himself or is described is not random, but it sets the tone for much of the letter. His identity gives us a big clue as to what he's going to say next and what he's going to do, what he's going to be dealing with and why he writes to them. It was very deliberate. So what does it mean then that he holds the key of David? That's our question. What does it mean that he can, what he opens, no one can shut, and also what he shuts, no one can open? What is that all about? See if we can work it out. I think for Jesus to hold the key of David means that he is the one who is sovereign over sin and Satan and death. Finally, that's what it's talking about. He is sovereign over those who enter his kingdom. So he's the promised one from David's line. He is the promised king, the promised Messiah. David's kingdom was to be an everlasting kingdom. And so to have the keys to this kingdom means that you have power. You control, if you like, who comes in and who goes out. And I think that that very fact will be a hugely encouraging thing for them. A hugely encouraging word for them to hear. Because in verse 9, and as we've already said, life is hard for them. They are facing opposition in the town. You see the main source of strife, verse 9, those of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they're not, but are liars. But you see, maybe they are saying that they are the true people of God. And these Christians, these young upstarts, this little weird cult who worship this Jesus guy, and they are not true believers, they're saying. And yet Jesus flipped it on his head and said, actually, they're the synagogue of Satan. They think they are God's true people, but they are not God's true people. They think they might be the true worshippers, but they are not the true worshippers. Jesus says, I hold the key of David, not you. I get to decide who comes in and who goes out, not you. And in fact, the synagogue of Satan, you think you are in, but actually you're out. You think you're inside the building, but it's the other way around. I hold the key of David. I am the king and you've missed me. if you like, they are self-appointed doorkeepers. And they raise their objections and their opinions and their opposition and Jesus comes and says, actually, I have the keys. You've got it all wrong. You've got it all muddled up. And you've missed the doorkeeper. So the foundational encouragement in the face of opposition, the first P, if you like, is that Jesus has the keys. He is the one with the power. He knows who is in and who is out. He has the authority. I take it that's a truth to cling to. A truth to cling to, particularly perhaps for brothers and sisters around the world who face opposition, or maybe even when we face opposition ourselves. Jesus has the power. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus decides who is in and who is out. 
But then he speaks of this open door. He said it in verse 8. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I, I know that you have little strength, but you have kept my word and have not denied my name. What is this open door that he speaks of? As you read through the Bible and you, you read of open doors, I think pretty much entirely they are to do with opportunities. Particularly opportunities in witnessing. Let me give you some examples. So, again, if you're note-taking, then I'll try and go slowly, but Acts 14, 27. Um, on arriving there, they gathered the church together, reported all that God had done through them, how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 12, Paul writes to them, I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me. Or again, famously, Colossians 4, verse 2 to 3, he asks the church to pray for an open door. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. And so if, I think pretty universally, open doors are to do with opportunities for witnessing, opportunities for serving, for sharing the message of Jesus, then I think he's encouraging them that in his sovereignty he has opened a door for them to keep looking outwards, to keep sharing Christ. I think if there's one negative in the letter, it's the implication there that the door is open for witnessing. He has the keys and the door is open for the message to go out. Again, a bit of history and a bit of geography helps us perhaps try and solidify exactly what this would have meant for them as they read it. Philadelphia was strikingly a centre for spreading the Greek language, for the spreading Greek culture. It was a border town situated where the different borders of, of Mycia, Lydia and Phrygia meet. It was a Hellenistic missionary city. Kind of like Oxford, when people come and learn the English language, perhaps. Maybe Jesus is saying, well, if pagans can spread their ideas, if this city, in a sense, is an open door to the rest of the region, then I am the one with the door open for opportunities for you to speak of me. I think Philadelphia is quite like the modern West, in lots of ways. There was much going for them socially, materially. It was a well-off place. It was a relatively peaceful time, as it currently still is in the West. The communications were great. There were Roman roads everywhere. There was a common Greek language. And Jesus says, I have placed before you an open door, an opportunity to keep speaking of me. But the striking thing as well in context is that they're finding it hard to be a Christian, to, to serve Christ. They are facing opposition, they are under, kosh from the local, under the kosh of the local synagogue. Maybe that sounds just a bit like an opportunity to sort of put the volume down a little bit, just to stand your ground a bit, just to stand firm rather than being too sort of outspoken because they're facing these hardships. Just maybe blend in a bit more. Think... Think Christian Union in a university town facing opposition from the university themselves, from the student union, the local student newspaper, 
They're just tempting to just kind of turn the volume down a bit. Surely that's viable, surely that's sensible, surely that's wise. Think of a small church beaten and battered by militant, uh, tolerant secularism. Wouldn't it just be wise to quieten down a bit, just to blend in a bit more, to, to put the volume down a little bit? That seems to be their context. They're finding stuff difficult. Jesus says there's an open door. In the midst of the hardships, in the midst of the persecution, don't put the volume down. Turn the volume up even. In the midst of the storm, don't just seek to keep the rowing boat afloat. Press on. New destinations, new opportunities. And now you're thinking, what? How, how do we do that? How can we do that? Because we know the one who's sovereign, who holds the keys. I wonder if this is a, this is a message for us as a church in the West at this point. We're maybe feeling a bit battered, maybe feeling a bit squeezed, maybe knowing something of that pressure. And yet, he says to us, doors open. Keep going. Perhaps in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the persecution, that's when your, your message, that's when your witness is, is most important, most potent even, as people see a, the difference in you and the reason for the hope that you have. When we looked at um, Revelation 1, uh, back in the spring, deliberately, again and again, I use the same metaphor, the same description, the same idea, I'm working through uh, what was going on there? We talked of being um, about we're climbing a flight of stairs. Do you remember? Hopefully, there's a few nods. We're climbing a flight of stairs, and the trouble is, everyone else is coming down, and they're getting annoyed with us because we're in the way, and we get a bit annoyed with them. There's kind of hustle and bustle as you we go to the left or the right, or you've got shopping bags, and, and there are some bumps and there's some collisions and some tucks and some frustrations. And at times, we're just tempted, maybe. Maybe it's easier to turn around and go back down with everybody else. Quite a life. Is it worth going up the stairs? And maybe even the, the stairs are feeling a bit steeper. And our legs are quite tired and there's more and more and more people coming down the stairs. And that's a bit like what it feels like to be a Christian sometimes. We're thinking, is it worth it? Maybe I should just turn around and come back down again. And yet Jesus says to us, it's almost as if he says, don't just keep your head down don't just keep plodding up the stairs. Ch- chat to some of the folk as they're walking past you. Encourage them to turn around with you and to keep going. Tell them who I am. He says, see, I've placed a door before you, an open door that no one can shut. Keep speaking of me. What does that mean for us corporately? It means as a church, I guess as we, as we did at Christmas, we just make what we can of opportunities. We do carol services and live nativities and church services and ongoing stuff like real life and um, Christianity Explored and planting churches and that kind of thing. But it's remembering there is an open door. And even though it's hard, even though it can be frustrating, even though we can feel squeezed in a secular culture, particularly like East Oxford. It means we keep going. We keep at it. It means for us too, personally, we can be 
kind of humbly bold. Speaking of him in the daily stuff of life. Being prepared to deliberately and prayerfully engage with people and get to know them, to listen to them, to ask questions, to challenge them perhaps. Maybe it is that prayer each morning, we've spoken of this before, the prayer each morning that prays for open doors for that day. Lord, please, I want to be used by you today. We pray first thing as we roll out of bed or have our first cup of tea or whatever it is for you. And if you're not there yet, maybe it's, Lord, make me the kind of person who wants to pray the prayer for the open door for the day. Make me the kind of person who's, who's more concerned for the people that I rub shoulders with day by day. Make me the kind of person who, who might want to look for open doors now and again, even though I find it scary. Because I take it a bigger picture, the Lord has opened the door for us. It is a relatively peaceful time. We can still legally share our faith. Communications are good. Many of the people whom we rub shoulders with day by day will speak English. Just as for them, there was a common Greek language. There were good trade routes. There were networks of people who moved around. The problem is, we're just not that bold. Or life is too busy. Or we don't see the open door. So he seeks to encourage them. First point. He encourages them with his power. He is the key holder. He is sovereign and powerful. These people who are persecuting you are actually on the outside. You guys are on the inside. But as well as that, there is the open door for the message. The other key encouragement that we'll spend time on is this promise of protection that he gives them. And that's in verses 9 and 10. Have a look down with me. Verse 9. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews though they are not but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. So two types of protection that he promises them. The first one is from the Jews, and the second is from this God's testing of the world. Um, in verse 10, we'll come to that in a moment. Jews firstly. Again, church history interestingly tells us about the Jews in Philadelphia. A couple of... Um, that little paragraph for you, the Talmud testifies they were compromising with the local pagan temples. The wines and baths of Phrygia, which was the local region, has, have separated the ten tribes from Israel. Okay, so, so they're not true Jews, but they're liars. That means they're being assimilated into the culture. They are looking like the local culture. They are in bed with the local pagan temples as well as that Ignatius writes, that there was an ongoing conflict between the Philadelphian church and the local um, Jews until at least the sec- second century. So you see, test of, that, that there is clear testimony that there was um, conflict going on between the local Jews and the local Christians. But I find verse 9 very striking. Have a look down at it. It says, Your enemies will come and bow down before you they will come and admit that you are God's people, that you were right, that you were the Messiah's people, which presumably means, encouragingly, some of their enemies will see Jesus for who he really is. Some will have eyes opened and will worship him. Isn't that striking? 
We don't know how it's going to happen. We know that it will. We know that the one who holds the keys is the one who knows how to open doors. That there is an open door for the message. It makes me think about how we pray for our enemies. Pray for those who persecute Christians. I always find it hugely striking in prayer meetings or in public gatherings when we pray for situations and and we're praying for the person who's being oppressed, we're praying for the person who's being persecuted and suddenly someone prays for the persecutor. And you can hear the pin drop. But it's quite right. Because the Lord does open the eyes of the blind. He does open the pools of this world who persecute the people of God and yet somehow, sometimes, are transformed. And it's a striking idea, it's dripping with irony, because if you go through the Old Testament, you read prophecies of Gentiles flocking to bow down to the people of God. Non-believers bowing down to believers. But what's happened here is it's switched. This prophecy has been fulfilled by the Gentile church. And that has become the true Israel because it's trusted Christ. In contrast, ethnic Israel fulfills the role of the Gentiles because they've not believed. So protection, firstly, from the Jews. Secondly, it's a slightly enigmatic thing in verse 10. And the honest answer is we don't exactly know what he's talking about. It's clearly in one sense finally talking about final judgment when Jesus will return, when he will bring in his kingdom, when he will wrap up the creation in in one sense as we know it. The encouragement to remember big picture in their day-to-day struggle in the little nitty-gritty struggle of life, life. Remember, he's coming back one day. There will be a final accounting. Everyone will have to answer. He will come then. But it might be not just the big second coming, it might be a smaller coming too when the Lord will visit and will judge. Elsewhere, I'm told this whole world phrase that you get in verse 10 is used in different ways. Sometimes it is the whole inhabited world, sometimes it is the entire Roman Empire, sometimes even it is parts of the Roman Empire. You may be talking about a particular judgment that the Lord brings on those who have been persecuting his people. But we do know what's going on is there will be a spiritual protection for them. In the midst of the hardships and the difficulties that will be ramped up, he will sustain them and help them to endure. And then he looks further into the future as well. At verse 11 to 12, lifting their eyes from the stress of day-to-day life to what will happen when he finally returns. Verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. I will also write on them my new name. You see, like the marathon, he wants them to see the end. Because if you know there's an end coming, then you keep going. Not that I've run a marathon, but some of you have. On a particularly long run. 
when you know you're finishing, then you keep going. And so to capture their imagination, he, he lists kind of three images to keep them pressing on. He talks about a crown, verse 11. He talks about a pillar at the start of verse 12. And then a new name, or indeed a number of new names, names written on them. Why each of these? Why a crown? Well, in Philadelphia, the crown was a place of victory. It was a picture of victory and honour. Competitions were common there. Games were common there. And so to, to have a new crown, that no one will take away your crown, is an interesting idea. To lose a crown means to be deprived of the honour and of the glory that is yours. He's saying, hold on, persevere, and no one will take your crown away. You will not be put to shame. You will be secure. The pillar, again, is perhaps, and the allusion to this earthquake zone that they are in, with regular quakes and tremors, you would know how important it is to be, or to have, solid pillars, strong pillars. And believers are elsewhere described as being part of the spiritual household, the spiritual building of God, more like Ephesians 2, for example. But it seems that some will be pillars, maybe a sign of permanence, perseverance, honour, stability. In the midst of the persecution, they've shown themselves to be steadfast. They will be seen to be steadfast in God's eternal kingdom. And then there's a name that they will have. So keep going because of the crown. Keep going because you'll be pillars, because you've been pillars. Then there's a name in verse 12, and that ties back into verse uh, 8. Does it tie back into verse 8? I might have the wrong wrong one. It ties back into one of the verses. Oh, there we go. Yes, verse 8. No, no, no. There you go. I was looking at verse 7. That's why I couldn't see it. Ties back into verse 8. They have, they have not denied his name. And so they will be stamped with the names from the Lord. In fact, three names. The name of God, the name of Jerusalem, and the new name of Jesus. And it shows, a name on them shows something of dignity and ownership. It shows they are his. It shows who they belong to. It shows the team that they are a part of. Again, a picture of honour. They've not denied his name. He will mark them as his. And so for Christians who are persecuted, who are finding things difficult, Jesus says, remember my power. Remember who I am. Remember that I have the keys in my hands. And I decide who is in and who is not. And I'm the one who opens doors and I've opened a door for you to keep speaking of me. But as well as my power, I will protect you because it's not going to be easy. But I will protect you from these unfaithful Jews who think they are right but they are wrong and I will protect you from all that's to come, whatever that was. And remember I'm coming soon. For the one who is faithful and steadfast and perseveres 
there will be a permanent honour and glory because this isn't forever. This is just for a time. And soon gone will be the days of persecution and here will be the days of rest and glory. And to keep going, church in Philadelphia, keep pressing on. Let's pray.